Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Okay, thank you all for coming tonight to uh, this podcast. It's something new for me to do it in front of an audience. I've always done it in my house or sometimes one-on-one privately, but when uh, I heard that Yaakov Katz is going to be here in town to speak and several other engagements, we prevailed upon him and asked him if he would come out to do this, and he said yes, and so I'm excited, really thrilled about it. And um, I think for all of you, you're going to really enjoy it very much. Uh, Yaakov, I'm not going to read his whole bio because it would take the whole program, but uh, Yaakov is um, the former. That's why he's here, because he's a former, because all the people on my program are formers. That's why I decided to do it, and that's why it's called Unrestricted. It was the former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, and uh, really just several weeks ago decided to step down. We'll talk about that. He's an author of a very interesting book. Rabbi Trump was just talking to him about it called Shadow Strike. Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. I have the book. Very, very fascinating. It really reads like a, it could be a movie maybe someday, right? Who knows? And he served as um, decades as working for the Jerusalem Post as a military reporter, defense analyst. He was a lecturer at Harvard University. He served also under Naftali Bennett when he was Minister of Economy and Diaspora Affairs. And uh, he was originally from Chicago. And although he doesn't have an accent, I'm not sure why. He has a law degree from Bar Ilan University. He lives in Yerushalayim with his wife, Haya, and their four children, and is the son-in-law of Rav Bina. So uh, I knew people would say, ah, oh, there you go. Okay. My, my claim to fame. It's your claim to fame. <laughs> why not? Okay. So thank you for being here, Yaakov. I really appreciate it very much. And uh, let's get started. First I've of all, I've never recorded a podcast in front of an Aaron Kodesh. Okay, so, so now, well, maybe we have to be careful. It may not be unrestricted anymore. I'm not sure. Okay, so first of all, how does it feel to be the former editor in chief as opposed to editor in chief? Well, first of all, great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, you know, I, I think we met for the first time. I was thinking about this the other day. 18 years ago. On a mission, conference of presidents. On a conference of presidents mission to Azerbaijan. Right. To Baku, which for some reason I was chosen by the Jerusalem Post to go attend. And I was thinking about that also because President Isaac Herzog was just in Azerbaijan this week. Correct. Where he met with the president, who was the same president 18 years ago. So if we think that uh, Netanyahu has been been around too long, you know, there's always who to compete with (laughs) in places like (laughs) Azerbaijan. But they don't have elections there. That's Exactly. (laughs) Well, I don't know what they do. But um, I'd been at the Jerusalem Post uh, pretty much for 21 years. Uh, I had a short break in the middle of about two years when I went to work for Bennett after he had been elected as minister back in 2013. And for the last seven years, I served as the editor-in-chief of the newspaper. And it was fascinating. For the most part, I loved what I did. Uh, I love journalism. I love telling stories. That is my passion. But 
it, it catches up with you at some point. The constant, the the, the grind and the never-ending uh, news cycle, which never ends. The Jerusalem Post operates 24 hours, seven days a week. The one day a year that it does not, that website is not active as Yom Kippur, which would make sense if there's going to be a day, but every Chag and every Shabbat. And, and I always said, thank God that I was born an in, in observant Jew, which basically as a result, I'm, I, I'm compelled to keep Shabbat because it's the greatest invention. <laughs> and it gives me, it forced me all these years to at least have to pause for 25 hours once a week. But otherwise it, it never stops and that catches up with you at some point. So you decided to just take a different path. Is that what it is? So I decided that I want to take a break from the management of the newspaper. Uh, I decided at the beginning of the year, step down beginning of April. I have a couple of book ideas that I'm working on. One, again, a military topic. Another one looking at the future of the state of Israel and maybe some ways to think of a new vision for the country. Great. And uh, I'm working on some other projects in the media space and communications, and we'll see where it goes. And what about your family? Were they supportive of your idea of leaving, or that now they know that you may be around a little bit more? Well, first, my kids would complain that uh, I was never home, which I was home, but not as much as maybe they would have liked me to. Now they complain that I'm home too much. So yeah, what I've learned is kids will never be completely happy. But I mean, for sure, I think that, you know, it, this kind of job is, is highly intensive, and there really is never a dull moment. You're, you're chasing after every push notification and every tweet and every Facebook post and every headline, and there's always what to correct and always what to make sure that a reporter is covering. So uh, not to have that lachatz, that pressure on your shoulders all the time, is a great relief. Okay. So, you know, one of the things I really want to accomplish, having the podcast, especially in front of some people here from Young Israel, Florence Cedarhurst, is to really educate all of us about what's going on in the Middle East, because it's a very confusing place, as you know, more than anyone else. I always say, after one of our conference of presidents, uh, I asked someone who was a participant, uh, so we were here together, you have about 200 hours of speeches, what do you think? And she said, I'm more confused, but at a higher level. <laughs> so it's very possible you can do that. But I want to get right into it. So let's talk about Israel, and let's talk about the threats to Israel outside of Iran. We always know about Iran, right? but let's talk about outside of Iran. What do you see as the greatest threats to the state of Israel today? So we're talking outside of yes. the Israel, because I think we could talk about maybe later, but I think that the greatest challenges that we do face are domestic and are, are, are inside. But the greatest threats outside, with the exception of Iran, which, which just, by the way, is important to mention, Steve, that it's not, Iran is sometimes referred to as an existential threat. Right, of course. It's not yet an existential threat. It has the potential to become an existential threat if one day it were to get its hands on a nuclear weapon. But I think that when you look at all of the challenges that Israel faces along its borders, two things have to be said. The first is that when we consider this point in history that Israel is at right now, and I would argue, obviously within the 75 years of, of Israel as a state, but even in the 4,000 years, give or take, of us as a Jewish people, we've never been stronger from military perspective, economic perspective, and also Israel has something that is incredible over the last few years is energy independence, right? And you see now how so many countries in the East Med want to get their hands and be the conduit for how Israel's gas will flow to mainland Europe. 
so when you look at it from that con- in that perspective and you understand that there's no military today along Israel's borders with the ability to conquer territory. No one, not even Hamas, not Hezbollah, has the ability to conquer a Moshav or a Kibbutz along the southern or northern border. The Syrian military is disintegrated. Jordan, Egypt, we have peace with. So there is no real existential threat to Israel today. But there still are challenges. Hezbollah, if I look at the the ones that are along our borders, we just had a recent round with Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Hamas, of course, is in Gaza. But Hezbollah is of another scale, mainly because of two reasons. The first is just the size of their arsenal, which is already up to about 130, 140,000 rockets and missiles, but also because of the not just the quantity, but also the quality of what they have. They're able to strike where they want. They're working on a precision-guided munition, what's called PGMs they're trying to obtain. And they can really cover the entire state of Israel with that arsenal and strike targets that they want to with with unprecedented accuracy for a guerrilla or terrorist organization. That's a grave threat. But again, let's put it into its context. It's not a threat of an existential nature. Okay. So I wanted to actually talk about the neighbors and the neighborhood, which obviously is not so great, and to look at each one of them and understand what happens. Like, let's talk about Egypt. So we have peace with Egypt, but Sisi is not going to be here forever. What happens after he's gone? You know, we saw what happened after Hosni Mubarak was overthrown and who came to power. It was Muhammad Morsi from the Muslim Brotherhood. And we all remember how tense those relations were and how concerned Israel was because you had basically the foundation of Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, which was serving, which is now taken over the, the largest Arab country with a 250 kilometer border with the state of Israel and a significant powerful military with American-made platforms, tanks, fighter jets, missiles, etc. Sisi is, is a very close friend to Israel, and there's amazing and unprecedented military and security cooperation that goes on, even with Israeli forces and, and systems being used together with the Egyptians to help fight and crack down on ISIS and other terrorist infrastructure, particularly in the Northern Sinai. What happens when Sisi's gone? I don't know that I have a great answer, but we can hope that somebody who is like him will will take over. I think, you know, Egypt, it, here's here's the interesting thing about Egypt, right, is, and this is a question maybe more for you and for this country, but what is it that, you know, after the Camp David Accords, Israel started to receive what later turned into $3.8 billion, but the Egyptians get about $1.2 or $1.3 billion annually in, in, in military aid as well. And... Every year for the last few years, definitely under Obama, but also under uh, Biden, they are withholding a significant portion of that aid because of political prisoners, because of human rights violations and, and the likes. And, and, and I get that, right? That's all important and that's valuable. But what, what does America want of Egypt? What do they expect Egypt to do? Uh, and and do we not want Egypt to be a strong country? Do we not want Egypt to continue to serve as a pillar of stability in in the Middle East and in the region? So I'm not saying that we should just write off human rights violations and political prisoners, but there's a bigger scheme of things that we also have to keep in mind when it comes to such a volatile region. It's true. I remember one time someone asked Shimon Peres that question, and he said, peace is... Uh 
definitely, without any question, less expensive than war. Of course. So whatever you can do to keep the peace, if you can do it, obviously you're going to try to do that. Well, let's go to Jordan then. Now, once again, there's a longest border, King Abdullah. I mean, the country is very, very poor, relies on everybody. I think if the price of falafel went up by two cents, who knows, it could be a revolution. What happens there? Is there going to be an orderly transition after he's gone? You know, Jordan, For interestingly, when you when you look back at the Arab Spring, which was nothing but nothing of a spring right. in the sense of hope, it, it skipped over Jordan. Jordan did not have the same scale and scope of protests like we saw in Egypt, which led to the overthrowing of Mubarak, like you saw in Syria, where, where Assad literally had to gas his own people and is now being accepted back into the nation, to the into the Arab League. But Jordan, it skipped over to an extent, and that had to do with a very strong security force and also strong allegiance to the king and, and to his family. When it comes to relations with Israel, Jordan is probably the, the most critical of uh, the two, Jordan and Egypt. Sisi, much more moderate, is not, is not as vocal. The king very vocal, very critical of Israel. I think that the main reason is because of the fact, because he gets amazing aid from Israel, yeah. military, security, intelligence. He gets a ton of aid from the United States, particularly since they had to take in about a million refugees from Syria. But whenever something happens on the Temple Mount, on Harabait, or anything happens with Palestinians, they're the first to jump at Israel. Something else that's telling is, is it was today or yesterday, as we're recording this, that the crown prince got married. And oh. uh, 1,700 people were invited to that wedding. He married a, a, a woman from Saudi Arabia. Leaders from across the world, I think Jill Biden flew to Amman oh, really? for the first lady, was, was, was flew there for the wedding. Uh, leaders from all over, not a single person from Israel. Not a leader, not a president, not a prime minister, not a minister. It's a country we have peace with. Right? Why is why is an Israeli not invited? And I think that that speaks to just the uh, the, the way they view this peace and how they it has never trickled down to their people. Similar problem in Egypt, but on the other hand, there's there's a hypocrisy there because they gain so much from the uh, the relationship, but they refuse to normalize it in the way that we see with other countries in the Gulf, where it's not just government to government, right. but it's also people to people. So one thing I've always tried to understand, uh, understand is, uh, look at Sinai. Now, ISIS is in Sinai, right? In why, parts of Sinai, yes. Why are they still there? I mean, the, the, the Egyptians have done a good job cracking down on, on some of those pockets. So there occasionally still are issues. We've seen how the pipeline has been, uh, is occasionally sabotaged. It, it's a big challenge, the, 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 mostly because of the Bedouin tribes, which they embed themselves in, difficult to, to get to. You know, look, Israel just this week, there was a shooting attack earlier today. There was the, the tragic murder of uh, Mayor Tamari, I think was right. his name, and that yeah. photo of his his widow with those two kids standing over his body draped in a talit is just, you know, shakes your core. We face terrorism still in, in, in Israel and in Yudab Shomron and Judea and Samaria, and they face terror in the Sinai. But even with that, by the way, you know, there are now flights directly from Tel Aviv to Sharm mm -hmm. al-Sheikh. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes, and, and you, you, you probably find that the hotels in Sharm with the flights are cheaper than the hotels in Tel Aviv, <laughs> well, which is not so surprising. That's amazing. Unbelievable. So what are we talking about, you know, um, Gaza? I think I, I myself don't really understand the difference between the PIJ and the 
and the Hamas. I mean, they both hate us. They both want to kill us. One wants to do it quicker than the other. What is it? What is it? Well, I mean, Hamas is the larger organization. Okay, right. Right. It's the one that's in control of Gaza. Much more sophisticated, greater, te more advanced technology, a much larger arsenal of, of missiles and the tens of thousands. Palestinian Islamic Jihad is smaller. Islamic Jihad is uh, the leader, it sits in, in, in Syria. They are direct proxy of the Iranians and have been funded from by them for, for decades. Hamas, very different, more Sunni, comes from the Muslim Brotherhood, whose foundings are in, are in Egypt and became an offshoot inside the Gaza Strip, mostly starting to begin with as a welfare organization, which quickly right. sprouted also into a very fierce terrorist group. But you're right, in some, to some extent, what does it make a difference who's shooting a rocket at us? But what Israel has done, which I think is, is a fascinating story in of itself, if you look at the recent Gaza operations, so if we go back in time to 2005 after Israel withdrew from Gaza and the disengagement, the first big operation was called Summer Rains, which came shortly after in, in 2006, after Gilad Shalit was abducted. Uh, I think it was June 25th, 2006. And then you start to have these long operations. That was a couple of months. Then you had, we all remember probably Oferati Tsuka, cast led at the end of 08, beginning of 09, which is about three and a half weeks. Uh, Pillar of Defense, which was in 2012, was about 15 days. Then you had Suketan, uh, Operation, what was it, Protective Edge, which, which took place in the summer of uh, 2014, 51 days. Somehow the conflicts have become much smaller in scope and, and shorter. And I think one of the big reasons behind that is Israel's precision capability that it has developed really in an unprecedented way and unparalleled in, in modern military warfare the ability to strike at who they want to. Occasionally there are mistakes, and sadly civilians do get caught in the crossfire and do die in war. But the ability when you're accurate, you just hit PIJ and you don't hit Hamas. Hamas doesn't have a necessary need to join the the, the fighting. And they've sat out on, on the sidelines right. already for a number of these conflicts, right? Which has the Islamic Jihad upset at Hamas. But Hamas understands that they don't need to fight just because the Islamic Jihad wants to fight, and they have bigger issues to deal with. For example, the prosperity of the Gaza Strip and its people. And today, when you have about 25,000 Palestinians who are crossing daily into Israel to work, which was in a decision of the previous Bennett-Lapid government, that creates a lever that helps moderate and restrain Hamas because of their responsibility also for the welfare and the economy and the income of people in Gaza. So when you have, you had this little conflict with PIJ, lasted for, I don't know, how long did it last for? I think it was four or five days. Four or five days. So when it was over, were they satisfied with what they did? Did they achieve their goals? Islamic PIJ? Jihad? PIJ, yeah. Islamic Jihad has, has been um, at its entire head cut off. Six of their top officials or their top terrorists, I think we could call them, uh, were, were taken out in surgical Israeli military strikes. A lot of their infrastructure was destroyed. You know, we talked about precision before. Israel struck about 500 targets in those five days, right? You look at, the, at, at how many casualties there were, the number was relatively low, and the number of people who were killed, most of them were, were terrorist right. operatives. That's become possible because of the amazing intelligence, the tactics, and the technology that Israel has. But what it what what PIJ walked away from is probably thinking to itself, why did we even 
how did oh, we get to this point? Really? To think that that's going to deter them yeah, right. and that there won't be another conflict in the future, that I won't say. Because if we look at the story of Gaza, especially, is one of just keeps, we keep on doing the same thing over and over again, right? Every about 18 months, we have another round with somebody in the Gaza Strip. Right. So, so the, the next one is probably just a question of time. Yeah. I, I mean, it was really interesting. I think that they actually uh, targeted two heads of the same organization. One was killed and then they picked a new person. And six days later, they killed five days later, they killed the, the second one. Yeah. No, there's no question about that. But I think people are always confused about this PIJ, Hamas, you know, what is it? So there's really, the truth is they're really, really kind of the same, except Hamas is, has more skin in the game because they have some uh, economic ties also and uh, responsibility, which is why I think probably some of the people in Gaza are upset with them because they feel that they're not really living up to what they had promised. True, although we've never seen protests against Hamas in Gaza like we've seen in other places in the Middle East, okay. which is, uh, I, I don't think we can assume ever that, that would, they would be overthrown. Now, one of the countries that I would say Israel has the most interesting relationship with is Russia. What is that relationship like? Look, Israel, you know, when the war broke out in February of 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and sadly that war continues to rage today, but Israel finds itself in a very serious predicament. On the one hand, I think Israel naturally said, we stand with the Ukrainian people and with the people whose and territorial integrity is is now in question and under threat. But on the other hand, we have a very significant security interests that Russia plays a big role in. Uh, Yair Lapid, who was the foreign minister at the time, said to me, at a, actually at a conference of presidents, I was interviewing him on stage and we were talking before, and he said, you know, we are more like a Baltic state, we Israel, than a country in the Middle East because we have Russia on our northern border. And if we, Israel, want to continue to strike in Syria at Iranian targets, Hezbollah targets, and we see every week, at least once, you'll read somewhere on the Jerusalem Post or another website of another mysterious bombing that took place somewhere in, in Syria. There was just an explosion the yeah, other day right. along the Syrian-Lebanese yeah. border, which interestingly, Israel said it wasn't behind it. And I think the concern there was that because some several people were killed and it, it started to inch into Lebanon, and Israel has made a very clear decision not to strike in Lebanon because it doesn't want to provoke a war with Hezbollah. So it can attack in Syria because it knows there probably won't be retaliation, but not in Lebanon. Israel needs to coordinate with Syria, with Russia, sorry. Right there in the in the bore, in the pit, the underground command center in the ID, in, in military headquarters in the Kiryan Tel Aviv, right? You've all probably seen it at the entrance to Tel Aviv oh, yeah, near right. the Azraeli Mall. There is a hotline with a Russian-speaking Israeli officer who is directly connected to Tartus in the naval base that Russia runs and operates in Syria on the coast with the of the Mediterranean. And they coordinate and they need to work together to make sure that Israel doesn't accidentally do something to some Russian. Right now, the attention of the Russians has changed since the war. They're much more focused, obviously, on Ukraine than what they've tried to do in, in, in Syria. But Israel has to work with them. Israel has interests when it comes to Iran and stopping the Iranians. And look at the close alliance today between Russia and Iran with drone technology, right? So recently there was an Israeli foreign ministry delegation that went to Moscow to meet with the deputy foreign minister there in Ukraine, got very upset. I think that on a moral level, we probably made a mistake as a country not making it clear from the get-go 
how much we stood with Ukraine and even allowing for that to be doubted. But from a national security perspective, I think Israel knows. And you know what? Look at the Russia-Ukraine war, right? What's the big lesson, I think, that the big takeaway is, yeah, people will throw money at you and they'll give you weapons. No one's going to come save you, right? So what's Israel's lesson to me? And this is against Russia. What's Israel's lesson? Israel has to take care of itself. So when thinking about its national security, it has to take care of itself first and foremost. And that's what it did with Syria, Russia, Ukraine. This is so, so confusing. So does Russia sell weapons to Iran? And then in turn, Iran tries to take that to Syria and Israel will bomb those weapons as they're coming to Syria, which were made in Russia, sold to Iran. You know, it, it's, it's just interesting, you know, your enemy is your friend, your friend is your enemy. You're not really sure what it's like. The, the dynamic in the Middle East, I've always thought, has long been one of the most fascinating dynamics or places, you, you know, talking about how weapons that go around come around in 1980, right? So we're a year after the Islamic revolution in Iran of 79. And under the Shah, the Iranian military had ordered about 75 F-16s. And at the time, Israel did not have F-16s. Israel had the uh, Phantoms and the Kfirs. Right. And in 1980, the Secretary of Defense, I think it was Kasper Weinberger, Kasper Weinberger. Right, came, came to Israel and was meeting with Ezra Weitzman, who was then the defense minister. And at some point he says to Weitzman, you know, we have these F-16s, would, would is, they're coming off the assembly line, McDonnell Douglas or whoever it was at the time, would, would Israel be interested in purchasing them? So v Weitzman calls up uh, David Ivry, who was then the commander of the Air Force, later became the uh, Israeli ambassador to Washington. Ivry told me this story and he's, he calls him into the room and he says to Ivry, would you be interested in the F-16s? And Ivry right away says yes. And uh, already within half a year later, Israel gets the F-16. So what was Ivry thinking about? Israel knew already about the Osirak reactor that Saddam Hussein was building outside of Baghdad. With the Phantoms, they wouldn't have been able to make that flight without refueling. The F-16s could do it. It was, a, it, it was at the, the border of their combat radius and range, but they could do it. And they did it, and we all know the story. Right, so think about that for a moment. Fighter just made for Iran, bought in the end by Israel, and used to attack a nuclear reactor in Iraq. <laughs> just like you just said. Think about how, how it all goes around. Okay, let's switch a little bit to the Abraham Accords. We yes. conference just came back a few months ago from, from the uh, Arabian Gulf and uh, United Arab Emirates, and also from Dubai and so on. And then we went to Bahrain. And, uh, you know, we got to see firsthand the Abraham Accords. But we saw some tensions also. Now, you know a lot more about it than I'll ever know. So tell us, is, is it working? And what do you think long-range plans are going to be? We'll talk about Saudi Arabia in a moment. But you, right now, if you're assessing the Abraham Accords, is it, is it working or not? I think it's definitely working, right? I think that there are hiccups along the way. You saw, by the way, we spoke about the Gaza operation. Was there really a condemnation at all from Morocco no, or the Emirates? No, there no. was nothing. They, bear, they didn't say a word. That, that's very interesting in and of itself. The people to people. We at the Jerusalem Post, we did a conference in Dubai. We've done a conference. We did a conference this past December in Marrakesh, Morocco, which was incredible. And walking through the, the marketplace there, every, every other 
stop, storekeeper, shopkeeper is, is says, you know, Manishma, how every, they all know Hebrew already because so many Israelis are going there. The ties are all the time growing. I think there's a lot more that can be done. And there's no doubt that when there are clashes on the temp and Harabite on the Temple Mount, and when Israeli policemen break into Al-Aqsa, that doesn't make them happy. And I think that, you know, you look at the Emiratis, I had uh, about six months ago when Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, who is ABZ, right, the foreign minister was in Israel for really a remarkable visit. I spent four or five days in Israel, went to Yad Vashem, laid a wreath. I mean, everything, it was really went to the Technion, the Weizmann Institute. And I was at a dinner with him at the uh, Emirati ambassador's house. And it was right around the time that Israel marked 500,000 Israelis who had gone in the span of just over two years to mostly Dubai. There's right. about six or seven flights a day, right? They all go there packed with Israelis. They come back packed with Israelis, but you don't get any Emiratis. And there's only been about 3,000 Emiratis who have come. And if you ask the Emirati officials, the ambassador, who's a great guy, by the way, Muhammad Al-Khaja, who, who's, who's based in uh, Tel Aviv, is really doing a fantastic job. Why don't they come? So two reasons are given which are interesting, right? The first is Israel is extremely expensive. Now, I know that sounds funny when we think about, you know, the wealthy Gulf Arabs, but when they they pour out of uh, the Emirates in the summer because it gets unbearable, right, uh, right. The, the heat, and they go places for three weeks, right? Now, probably most people here, and you definitely know, how much does a hotel room cost in Tel Aviv in July, August? You're looking at $600 if you're lucky, right, for a night. They can get places in Munich and Dusseldorf and I don't know where else in Europe for half the price, and they want to go for three. So that's number one. Number two is every once in a while, and this is probably more substantive, is they see these stories of Temple Mount and Gaza, and they don't want to come still. So I think that there's still a lot to do and a lot of work to improve that part of the of trying to get some of the Emiratis to come to Israel and see really what Israel is like. Yeah, you know, funny, we asked that question also when we were there, got the same answer that you got, except one more, that there are not that many Emiratis. I mean, right, there are only like true. a million people who are Emiratis, the rest are all, you know, right, right. So, Indians, Pakistanis. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's what they said. We asked about that question, and uh, they also said, you know, listen, what would you rather do, go to the French Riviera or go to Tel Aviv? They said, we think we go to the French Riviera. <laughs> so that's the reason that they told us. Now, people keep talking about Saudi Arabia. They're next. I mean, I have my own feelings about it, but I really want to know from you. What do you think? Do you think they'll ever join the Abraham Accords? I think eventually they will. Right. But I think that it's, it's got nothing to do with Israel. It has all to do with the United States at the moment. Uh, MBS Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, who will eventually become the king, uh, is, has made very clear demands of the U.S. government. Right. And let's not forget, even for the Abraham Accords to happen, the U.S. Trump administration had to play a very significant and important role in giving security assurances and even uh, weapon systems to some of these countries. The Saudis want three big things, right? The first is MBS wants to be taken off that blacklist that uh, Biden put on. Let's not, let's not forget that President Biden called him a pariah back when he was running for office and before he was elected president, and the relations have not been warm at all. So he, he wants to come back 
into the embrace of the United States. The second thing is he wants the Biden administration to stand by the commitment that was made by the Trump administration for massive sales of weapons. The third thing that they want is security assurances from the United States and a relationship similar, let's say, to the one that U.S. has with Israel, although it would never be of the same intimacy, but security assurances. And sorry, the fourth is they want to be able to mine uranium in Saudi and then enrich it in Saudi. Uh, not for a weapons program, which they claim, but for a civilian nuclear program. Lots of complicated matters here. But, uh, you know, I recently uh, had a conversation with a top U.S. diplomat who said that, also just repeated what I just said. This is not about Israel. Israel and Saudi Arabia are fine. We just heard about how Netanyahu spoke twice in recent weeks with MBS, right? We remember how Netanyahu went to Saudi back in 2019 with uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at the time. The relations are all there, but they're still under the surface. And I was talking with someone from Saudi, in Saudi Arabia just the other day, and, we're, and and he said, listen, Yaakov, you have a U.S. passport. You could come whenever you want, right? I mean, th- th- that's the ridiculous. Like, they know you're Israeli, but as long as you have your second passport, Baruch Haba. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I keep thinking about it. every time I go to Israel, especially with the conference, they're always, half the speakers are about Iran and how we're going to be attacking Iran. Any minute now, any day, you know, Malcolm, and, you know, Malcolm is always, tonight we're... We're going, okay, you know, and meanwhile, we never have. Do you think we ever will attack Iran? And one other question, I asked some people in the foreign ministry, I said, have anybody thought about what's the day like after, if we do? He gave me a very interesting answer. I want to to hear what you think. I think it's possible that we will. I, I think for two reasons. Firstly, Israel can't allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. If they were to get their hands on a nuclear weapon, it would be an existential threat to Israel. They themselves, the former president, Rafsan Jani, said uh, quite eloquently a few years back that Israel is a one-bomb state, right? All you need is one weapon to drop on Israel, and you pretty much get the job done. I would argue with that. You know, there could still be an Israel after a nuclear weapon, but God forbid that we should ever have to experience or go through that. We cannot live with that. The, the possibility that they would use it against us, the nuclear arms race it would set off in the region. Look at, we just spoke about Saudi Arabia trying to get their hands already on a nuclear capability, but take Egypt and Turkey and every other country that has self-respect in the region would also want it to offset and create a different balance and would impair Israel's operational freedom. We spoke about Islam, PIJ, Islamic Jihad. Next time Israel's threatened and wants to retaliate and and the Iranians say, don't you dare do anything in Gaza because look, we have a nuclear weapon. Can Israel defend itself with the same independence that it can today. So for all those reasons and more, they need to be stopped. Now, the the important thing here is, number one, Israel's done it twice. We spoke about 81 against Osirak in 2007. That was the book I wrote, was the bombing of Syria's nuclear reactor. And I think that Israel has showed, Israel's the only country that's done this, one not once, but twice in the world, and done it effectively, taking out another country's nuclear uh, capability. But the Iranians have learned those lessons. The first is not putting all your eggs in one basket, scattering facilities. The second is burrowing underground and making them fortified. But here's the real nafkamina, the real difference between what Iran's nuclear program is and the Iraqi and Syrian model. When Iraq's nuclear reactor was destroyed, the French had built it for them. And Iraq had no independent domestic uh, nuclear research or R&D or technical know-how. So they needed the French to come back. 
When Israel destroyed Al-Kibar in northeastern Syria in 2007, it was built by North Korea. Syria didn't know how to do it. Their Atomic Energy Commission was made up of 13 people, right? They didn't have, they didn't have any know-how. They would have needed North Korea, Kim Jong-un, to again send uh, people to come and build it. So once destroyed, they couldn't do it on their own. Today in Iran, you could destroy facilities, but you can't destroy knowledge and the knowledge they have. And that leads to what you mentioned of the day after. So you attack Iran, you, you take out some of their key facilities, you set them back for a year or two, you, right. don't, you never know right. for how long, maybe longer. But because they have the technical data and the know-how, they will be able to rebuild and they'll, then they'll have two things. First of all, international legitimacy, because let's assume the world will, will not have wanted us to attack. And two, domestic legitimacy. And, and a country that's very divided right, and people right. who are uh, opposed to the regime will now say they were right, the Ayatollahs. The Zionists are against us and they want to topple us. So we now need the nuclear capability. So you really have to, I think that explains why Israel has waited all this time, sure, right. right? The reason Israel has waited because it doesn't want to have to do it. But I think that if push comes to shove, if you're the prime minister and you're sitting in the chair like this and the your head of intelligence and your chief of staff come in and say, Mr. Prime Minister or Mrs. Prime Minister, they're building the bomb. Israel will have to do something to stop it. And hopefully it will succeed. Unbelievable. Very daunting uh, situation, that's for sure. Yes. Um, so let's just going to talk a little bit about Jerusalem Post. So you were there for, for many, many years. What was the most important story you ever scooped, broke, you know, for the world? That I personally did or yeah, the newspaper yeah, well, yeah. did? Wow. I don't, um, we, don't care, we don't care about the other people. We don't care about you. Okay. Uh, you know, a, a scoop. Look, there were a lot of there were a lot of cool stories. There were a lot of interviews. There was, you know, there was one story. I don't know. I think of a bunch at the moment. Um, there was once that I, I broke into a shoal in Constanta, Romania, on a Friday night with a bunch of soldiers from Shayetich Loshesri from Israel's Navy SEALs. That's a story in of itself. We were there. I had joined them for a NATO exercise that Israel was doing for the first time in the summer of 2006. And on Friday before Shabbat, so that we were going to set sail Sunday, I flew in. They had sailed for two weeks. And then I had to get there before Shabbat to be able to leave the port Sunday morning. So Friday, I was roaming around the city. And there used to be a thriving Jewish community, obviously, before the uh, the, the Holocaust. And I found this shoal. So I told them about it as we were eating Shabbat dinner on the boat. And they're like, take, take, take us there. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. But um, one story that stood out was back in, uh, I think it must have been 2008, 2009, when we broke a story of how Israel was negotiating with, with the Saudis and the Americans about arms sales and JDAMs. And a story that we did caused a huge uproar because exactly at the time, an Israeli defense delegation had gone to Washington. And that made a lot of noise. I mean, there were a lot of stories like that where you got to see over time just how news and 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 the stories that you tell, how they actually can influence and make a difference. And that, for a journalist, uh, is, is probably the greatest feeling. It's what about a story that maybe you broke and you found out later on was wrong? Thank page, God. Page 26 in the paper. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I don't think that, ever, that... That never really happened to me. I mean, w there, there was once a story that I had as when I was a military reporter, that a, a, a source had leaked to me emails that he had received from UNRWA, um, the United Nations yeah, right. Relief Work Agency, that they were trying to get uh, ambulances brought into the Gaza Strip. And 
the in the emails they said the Hamas won't let us bring these ambulances in, and we ran the story saying Hamas is preventing UNRWA and UNRWA denied it. But little did they know that we actually had the emails. So then when we revealed the actual oh. emails, so thank God that was the one time they tried to call us out as liars. I mean, there were times that, you know, China uh, sent me threatening letters after I interviewed the foreign minister of Taiwan, things along those lines where they no. said there will be consequences for what you've done. There have been a lot of, you know, exciting moments. Okay. Okay. Just one or two more things. First of all, I'm always intrigued when I read these reports that Israel is the 11th happiest country in the world. We went up to fourth this year. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Fourth from 11th. Fourth, yeah. but it but, but it, it was the, uh, it was before judicial reform protests. Oh, right? So, okay. you know, who knows okay. what the happiness, but you know what, even with the judicial reform protests, let's be honest for a moment, right? I think it's remarkable that you had for 20 weeks, two and a half percent of our population going out every week to, to protest, which by the way, is a beautiful sign of a, of a thriving and, and, and vibrant democracy. Can you imagine in this country, in the United States, what's two and a half percent of the population? It's about eight, nine million people protesting every week. It's right. unimaginable, it's here, right? And we had that in Israel. But with all those people protesting, what happened over Pesach just now? I read in the paper that a million and a half Israelis left the country to travel overseas. Now you go to Israel now and you ask Israelis, how's life? And they'll tell you, Everything's too expensive. Mortgage rates have gone up because the interest rates and the milk is too expensive and the bread is too expensive and gas is too expensive. Then don't go to Cyprus, Thailand, and Greece, you know, twice a year. If you're able to do that, you must have a little money in your pocket. So I think that overall, when you look at the big picture, Israelis are happy because life in Israel is very good. Life in Israel is safe. Life in Israel is secure. Unfortunately, yes, there's terrorism. Right, and I think that will always be the story. There will always be people who want to kill us, right? And people who want to weaken us. But when you look at what we've achieved in the span of just 75 years, Amazing. it's from $55,000 is our GDP per capita. Right. 20 years ago, it was barely $20,000. And this is 55,000 when you have half of Haredi men who are not participating in the workforce. Right. And that that they make up 13 percent of the population, in the Haredi community, they, they're going to become 30 percent of the population there. There's people who aren't working and still you have this kind of money. It's incredible. Yeah, no, no, there's no question about that. So I want to end with a little thing that I do call I call the lightning round. Basically, I'm going to ask you some questions and just give me the first thing that comes to your mind. It's unrestricted. So that's how we do it. Okay, okay I'll try to okay, be here. Uh... We go. <laughs> what who's the most impressive person you ever met? Wow. You really want to know the, the most impressive yeah, person? I mean, that's what we so I'll tell you. Right in front of an urban Yeah, you know, I recently told this to uh, an IDF officer who I met. Um, I've met prime ministers and presidents and, and secretaries of state and from all over the world. And, you know, I, I had the opportunity a few years back to interview the Polish president, Duda, which okay, stood out I mean. to me. Because for two reasons, and he's not the most impressive, but I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> I him. not at all. But I, I walked into the Polish presidential palace and, you know, it's the grandson of Holocaust survivors. My grandparents are no longer alive. But I said, what would they think to see their grandson walk in here? Right. So I've done all that. And that was all fascinating. The most impressive person I met was a soldier. So after the Mavi Marmara, remember back in 2010, sure, the Turkish flotilla, for those who might not remember, was heading to, to the Gaza Strip and Israeli naval commandos fast roped, hel helicopters fast roped down. 
And it became a whole, of course, Balagan because eight, nine people were killed. These were not peace activists, but that's how they were portrayed. So it was a major fiasco on every level. And for the first time in Israeli military history, they brought in journalists to the Shayetet base, which is in Atlit, right? Just south of Haifa. And we go to meet the, some of the commanders. We had a briefing and then they let us interview some of the soldiers. And I go to meet this guy. His name is Shai. And he was shy also <laughs> and looks like the sweetest guy and young, built like an ox, of course, because these guys got to be strong. And I'm talking to this person and I said to him, who, so where were you? So he was what they call in Hebrew, soger hakoach. He was number 13 of the soldiers who fast roped from the helicopter down to the upper deck of the Mavi Marmara. And by the time he got down there, a couple of his fellow soldiers had been thrown over the side of the boat as you probably all saw on that grainy right. black and white yeah. photo. Some had been stabbed, one or two had been shot. And basically he gets there, he sees what's going on. He on his own killed six out of the eight people because <sighs> who were attacking the soldiers, who were attacking the soldiers and created a perimeter and just took out his sidearm and protected his fellow soldiers. And I'm looking at this kid, he was about 22 at the time, so humble with such humility and such a hero and that has always stuck with me. And I, and I think to, for me, he has represented the, the best of, of what you find in the, in the IDF. And, and these, these, these youth who come and give of themselves in a way that is really remarkable. Okay. That's a good one word answer. Okay. okay. Sorry it wasn't No, 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 no. it's great. It was fantastic. Okay. Greatest leader. Ever? Who you met. Oh, I've met. Not later. We don't want to go back in history. Okay, we know. I, I'm very critical of him, but I also think that Benjamin Netanyahu is an amazing leader. Okay. Um, and don't give me the same answer. Best speaker? Barack Obama. Oh, okay. That's good. How about the most charming person you met? I know there's a lot of charming people um, who can really captivate a crowd. I don't know. I'm thinking within Israel. Ehud Olmert is really someone. Oh, really? who interestingly, it's surprising. I know, it is. But he is a guy who, uh, with all his corruption and all his pot, all, all the issues and went to jail, will call, will call me up. And he called me last week about something. And I had a daughter who was sick a few years ago, Baruch Hashem, today she's fine. And every time he calls me, so how's your daughter right away? And I know stories of how he will still deliver Shabbat food to friends. And he's just really one of the most charming, personable, really? and really caring. He remembers people he meets, unlike some of our other leaders who forget you the second they meet you. Wow, unbelievable. What about the most intimidating person you met? Could be the guy in Azerbaijan, but besides that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, you know, I was once in the presidential uh, palace in, in, uh, in Cairo and was in a meeting where with President Mubarak. He was pretty intimidating. Oh, yeah. Okay, if you had to be in a foxhole, besides your wife, who would you want in it? I'd probably want uh, my grandfather, who was uh, really an inspiration, a Holocaust survivor, a fantastic storyteller. And I think that uh, part of my draw to, to do what I did and what I do is because of him. I know you've been all over. Favorite vacation spot? Well, does it have to be Israel? No, any place. <laughs> Could right? be anywhere in the world. Probably the most... Uh, the most beautiful place I think I've been to is Lake Como in Italy. Oh, okay. Is there any place in the world you'd like to go where you haven't been yet? 
I'd love to go to Iran. Iran, okay. I, I feel that for so many years, I wrote a book called Israel versus Iran. <laughs> I've written about their nuclear program, probably thousands of stories about this stage and about the possibility of conflict. I would love to actually see the place. Yeah, I think a lot of people would. What about your favorite Chag? Pesach. Okay. You know, most people say that, by the way. Yeah. Anyway, listen, we can go on and on, Yaakov Katz. Uh, thank you so, so much for coming on uh, my program, Unrestricted, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I love it to you. Thank you all thank for you. being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.